As I was preparing the final draft of this sermon on gratitude, I conveniently stumbled upon a New York Times article that echoes many of my themes. Regarding Thanksgiving, the article's lead declares, the most psychologically correct holiday of the year is upon us. Cultivating an attitude of gratitude has been linked to better health, sounder sleep, less anxiety and depression, higher long-term satisfaction with life, and kinder behavior toward others, including romantic partners. But a precondition for reaping all those benefits is making the time and space in your life to notice those things which you are or should be grateful for. And I'm going to be inviting you this morning to consider some of the ways that you can be more intentional about noticing the parts of your life for which you are most grateful and least grateful. Douglas Burton Christie is a theology professor at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He's written about the shift that happened when his daughter turned three years old and started preschool. During the first years of his daughter's life, he spent most days with her. He knew what her day was like. He was there to share her joys and sorrows, her um, despairs, her highs, her lows. But when she began to spend a large portion of each day at preschool, and he would ask that classic question, what did you do today? The only response he could elicit was at most a short list of activities. Some of you may have experienced this phenomenon with your your growing children and teenagers. So to circumvent his daughter's reticence to share, Burton Christie invented a game that he invited her to play called Noticing to help communicate with his three-year-old. Instead of asking, what did you do today? He started asking his daughter, what did you notice today? And piece by piece, he found that he learned about her world. And because she demanded that he participate as well, he found himself noticing a lot more. What do you tend to notice in your daily life and why? There are almost countless aspects of our moment-by-moment experience that we can notice at any given time. Different sights and smells, tastes, touches, emotions. But our personalities and experience shape what stands out to us and what fades into the background. We can also get so busy that we fail to notice important details that are right in front of us. Perhaps some of you have noticed that phenomenon as well. But when some detail does break through and resonate with us, either positively or negatively, that may be an invitation to reflect on why did that detail stand out to you in particular. I sometimes think of the poet Mary Oliver as the patron saint of noticing. Many of her poems emerge from her long-time practice of rising early and walking through the woods around her house and closely noticing the world. In her latest collection titled A Thousand Mornings, one of the poems that resonated with me most strongly was the one you heard earlier, Poem of the One World. She writes, This morning, the beautiful white heron was floating along above the water and then into the sky, the sky of this one world we all belong to where sooner or later, everything is a part of everything else. 
which thought made me feel for a while quite beautiful myself. Now, if Oliver had not been paying attention that morning, she might have missed that white heron. But on that particular morning, one of a thousand mornings, that heron spoke to her spirit. Its graceful transition from floating in the water to soaring in the sky gave her a tangible experience of being connected to what we Unitarian Universalists call the interdependent web of all existence. And her connection to that one bird invoked that sense of interconnectedness. So one concrete way of cultivating gratitude is to be more intentionable about noticing the world around you. And you can amplify the power of this practice and keep yourself accountable to regularly noticing what you are grateful for by making a commitment to share your daily gratitude or gratitudes with someone else, whether it's a child, a partner, or a friend. Maybe you need to find a three-year-old that will keep you accountable to sharing what each of you are most grateful for. For example, I've seen many people this month on Facebook and Twitter posting one gratitude per day in the month of November. In my own life, one of the most consistently helpful ways I've found for increasing what I notice is a practice called the Awareness Examine. The name of this practice, the Examine, sounds like the word examination, and the the two words are etymologically related. But the examine that I'm referring to is spelled with an E-N at the end, not an I-N. It derives from the Latin word that describes the pointer on a scale. Now, this is a little old school for those of you who have grown up with digital scales. It's what used to be called the tongue on a balance. Uh, Picture the display on a non-digital scale when you step on it. The pointer goes like this until it hones in on the weight that is on top of it. The practice of the examine is like the arrow on that scale. It helps you weigh the value of various aspects of your life. It was first detailed as a practice by Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century. He was the founder of the Jesuits and wrote about it in his book, Spiritual Exercises. Now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that book to you as the next book you should add to your reading list, but the examine has also been described in a much shorter and much more accessible way in a book by the Lynn family called Sleeping with Bread, Holding What Gives You Life. In short, the examine encourages you to respond to two questions at the end of each day. What is my greatest consolation and what is my greatest desolation? Put more simply, you can ask, what am I most grateful for and what am I least grateful for? Over time, to add nuance, you can ask variations on consolations such as, where did I feel most connected, most energized, most loved? Correspondingly, you could ask, where did I feel most isolated, most innervated, or most taken for granted? Many of our committees and groups here at UUCF begin uh, meetings with a contemporary form of this practice called simply a check-in. I started practicing the awareness exam almost a decade ago, and it's one of my most consistent spiritual practices. And I've continued to practice it almost every day because I've found it to be so valuable. One of the most powerful and practical gifts of this practice is that it helps you notice those people, places, and activities in your life that consistently bring you consolation. And as you notice patterns of what consistently makes you feel connected, alive, energized, loved, 
The invitation is to find a way to cultivate more of that person, place, or activity in your life. Conversely, as you practice the awareness examine, you may also notice that there's a pattern of certain people, places, or activities that consistently bring you desolation. As you notice patterns of what consistently makes you feel isolated, innervated, or taken for granted, an invitation may be to consider whether you need to have less of those people, places, or activities in your life. This practice of noticing and choosing what is life-affirming over what is life-negating can seem particularly simple or obvious. Structure your life to do more frequently those things that bring you consolation and less frequently those things that bring you desolation as much as possible. You know, death and taxes are coming whether, we, whether they're consoling or desolating to us. But we can also get so busy that we don't take time to notice even these simple patterns of consistent consolation or desolation in our life. Even if I'm dead tired when I lay down to sleep, instead of counting sheep, my practice is to gently think back through my day and to name those things that I'm grateful for, just one at a time, until I find myself slipping off to sleep. It's honestly a great way to fall asleep, savoring those things that you're most grateful for. In the wake of this most recent election, I spoke last week about the importance of savoring what you're grateful for. That when love wins, when peace prevails, when the marginalized are included, we need to pause and savor that moment of gratitude and thanksgiving. And over the past decade, as I said, savoring has been one of my most central spiritual practices. And to be clear what I mean by savoring, it means giving yourself permission to linger over your moments of consolation, to re-experience them with your whole self, to fully integrate those consolations into yourself, into your memory. Now, the awareness examine is an old spiritual practice, dating back, as I said, at least to the 16th century. But the benefits of savoring your consolations are being consistently affirmed in the latest neuroscientific research. Some of you may be familiar with the 2009 book, Buddha's Brain, the, practice, the Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. Have any of you read that book? Got a few out there? All right. Uh, it's written by Rick Hansen, a Ph.D. neuropsychologist, and Rick Mendes, an M.D. neurologist. One of the insights that stayed with me from that book is the metaphor, your brain is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. These two scientists, along with other researchers, are, are mounting an argument that those, uh, that those of our ancestors whose brains noticed negative, potentially threatening experiences, the ones that noticed it the fastest and held on to the memory of those negative experiences the longest, were more likely to avoid those potential negative threats in the future. So they avoided predators, they survived, and they passed on their genes to the next generation and eventually to us. And when our ancestors were living in the wild, with potential predators all around, having a brain that latched onto negative experiences like Velcro in an almost obsessive, even neurotic way, was an important survival tool. But in our contemporary world, this evolutionary inheritance can sometimes give us a neurotic focus on the negative over the positive. And we can wish our brains were more inclined to hold on to all the positive things in our life that we're grateful for. But our sources of gratitude can slip away from our attention like Teflon 
especially when we're under stress, which mimics that experience of being under threat by a predator. And we find ourselves fixating first and foremost on those few negative things instead of the many positive things. Now, through my spiritual direction training, I've, I've been hearing about savoring work for a while, but I'd, and I'd heard about it before reading Buddha's Brain. But I was nonetheless pleased to see Handas and uh, Mendes explicitly promoting the practice of savoring to counterbalance our brain's tendency to be like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. So they write regarding our consolations, savor the experience. It's delicious. Make it last by staying with it for 5, 10, even 20 seconds. Don't just say, oh, I'm grateful for that. Really linger with it. Don't let your attention skitter off to something else. The longer something's held in awareness, the more emotionally stimulating it is. The more neurons that fire and thus wire together. And the stronger the tr in our trace memory. Focus on your emotions and your body sensations, since these are the essence of implicit memory. Let the experience fill your body, the experience of gratitude. Let it fill your body and be as intense as possible. If someone is good to you, let that feeling of being cared for spread a warmth throughout your whole chest. Pay attention to the rewarding aspects of that experience uh, that you're grateful for. How good it feels to get a great big hug from someone you love. Focus on these focusing on these rewards increases dopamine release, and it makes it easier to give the experience your attention, and it strengthens its neural associations in implicit memory. So if you feel like your life is particularly un-Buddha-like at any particular moment, then a practice of savoring the small stuff, the simple, ordinary parts of your life that you're grateful for, taking 5, 10, 20 seconds to really linger on one of those gratitudes is a way of cultivating a more Buddha-like brain. Personally, when I'm walking my dogs around the neighborhood, I often take a deep breath and really savor the view of the mountains. Mountains speak to my spirit the way that heron spoke to Mary Oliver's. And the many breathtaking views all over Frederick are one of the many reasons I'm grateful to live here. I try to savor those views many times each day. Every time I walk out the front door here at UUCF, I try to take a breath and savor the many reasons I'm grateful for working here, for the opportunity to partner with you and bringing those principles of Unitarian Universalism into a reality, not just words on a paper, and diving deeply into all six sources that we treasure. Each morning when I get up, I usually find that Megan has already made breakfast for me. I try to pause and sa savor Megan's gift of embodying her love through concrete acts like cooking. Now, speaking more broadly... Despite the diversity within Unitarian Universalism, many of us can agree about the importance of savoring that first cup of coffee or tea in the morning. And along these lines of slowing down and savoring every bite of a meal, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk has written an entire, Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, has written an entire book called Savor, Mindful Eating, Mindful Life. He recommends many different practices in that book, among them just actually putting down your utensil between bites to give yourself a chance to really taste what's in your mouth before shoveling another bit 
in there. So really slowing down and savoring. Mindful eating, mindful life. Here in the developed world, it can be really easy to take even simple conveniences for granted. We can sometimes forget to savor even the simple pleasure of taking a hot shower. Savoring can be a way of transforming a shower from a chore that you have to do to get out the door in the morning and not get fired into an experience of how pleasant and relaxing and invigorating it can be to have a cascade of hot water pouring over you anytime you want it. And in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, those of us who lost power, if only briefly, got a reminder to be grateful and savor that remarkable fact that on most days you can flip a switch and get heat and light. To note one further invitation for gratitude and savoring, the Sufi mystic Rumi has a challenging line from his poem Bread Making that says, the way that you make love is the way that God will be with you. The way that you make love is the way that God will be with you. To keep this sermon G-rated and child-friendly, uh, <laughs> suffice it to say that this is an invitation to slow down and truly savor those people, places, and activities that bring us the greatest consolation. Of course, all this talk about gratitude and savoring is easier said than done. Cultivating ordinary gratitude, noticing our consolations and desolations, and savoring them all are practices that happen over time. They're things we do. As with practicing the piano, practicing basketball, practicing yoga, method and frequency matter. As you've heard me say before, quoting one of my swim teachers, practice doesn't necessarily make perfect, but it tends to make permanent. If you're sloppy with your swim strokes, you'll find that that lazy swim stroke has become your permanent swim stroke, even in competition. The same rules apply to practicing a piano piece wrongly or honing your free throw shot or trying to do a yoga pose correctly. Um, Practice makes permanent by ingraining habits that are often difficult to break. So we want to be intentional about inculcating good ones, like savoring gratitude. So even though our brains are like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones, the more we notice our consolations and give ourselves permission for 5, 10, 20 seconds or longer to really savor what we're grateful for with our whole self, the more we can inculcate a groove of gratitude even in our gratitude-resistant Teflon-like brains. And if gratitude is a practice that we're invited to practice every day, then the holiday season is like the World Series of Gratitude. And on Thanksgiving Day, when many of us will be spending time with family, we're presented with a particularly fruitful and challenging time to remember that our brains are like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. Our family members are often simultaneously some of the people we're most grateful for and the ones who can trigger our worst selves most easily. As was said at a recent training a few of us attended for the pastoral care team here at UUCF, your family members are the ones who can most easily press your buttons because they're the ones that sewed the buttons on. The Buddha's brain researchers have noted that in relationships, it typically takes about five positive interactions to overcome even one negative one. 
So if being around your family is particularly challenge, challenging, an invitation is to try to carve out some time each day, maybe more than one time each day that you'll be around extended family, to really savor with your whole self for 5, 10, 20 seconds, even longer, what you're grateful for as a way of compensating for those probably soon-to-be-coming desolations. That may involve journaling. It may involve a really long walk a few times a day to get some perspective if familial strife hits a peak. For this morning, though, with the potential stress and joy of Thanksgiving still a few days away, I'd I'd like to invite you to practice a little, to get ready, to practice that art of savoring. In a few moments, I'm going to ring the bell and invite you to ask yourself, What am I grateful for? And in the silence, I invite you to pause and listen. After about a minute, I'll ring the bell again. But during that silence in between, really listen and open yourself up for what emerges about what you're grateful for, what's really consoling to you, what really gives you energy, makes you feel alive, makes you feel connected. Allow yourself, as you're listening, to maybe be surprised by what emerges that you're grateful for. As you do so, remember that guidance from Buddha's brain. Make your consolation last. Once it emerges, stay with it for 5, 10, 20 seconds, even longer. Savor this gratitude with your whole self. Let the experience fill your body. Focus on your emotions and your bodily sensations. Allow them to be as intense as possible. Pay particular attention to the rewarding aspects of the experience. What are you grateful for this morning? What do you desperately need to savor? As we continue to savor and reflect on our sources of gratitude,